0: Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel, Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and The New York Times. And I'm here today with my very special guest, Hal Shreve. Hal is the author of the novel, Out of Salem, which was longlisted for the National Book Award in 2019. Her second novel, How to Get Over the End of the World, will be published this fall. Z is also a children's librarian at the New York Public Library, And the author and illustrator of the cult favorite webcomic Vivian's Ghost If you follow Hal on Instagram, you've definitely seen me in the comments of Vivian's Ghost being a comedian (laughs) Her work focuses on the triumphs and tribulations of trans people as they come of age Which makes her a perfect guest for this show Hal, welcome to Joe's Boys, how are you doing? Thank you. I'm so interested in the structure of this podcast, and I think it's cool. Yes. And as a children's librarian, I mean, people are always coming to you with feedback about Little Women, about the March sisters. You once gave to me a poem written by a child in defense of Meg March. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's constant, but I think Little Women is still present
1: in children's lives to some extent because people are like, it's a classic. And for this particular summer writing contest contestant, She was, I think, 11, and she had profoundly connected with Little Women, and specifically with Meg, and she had done this via Taylor Swift lyrics (laughs) for about 20 pages of poetry. It was really good, and we could not—unfortunately, the contest was for an essay, and instead she had submitted 20 pages of poetry about Meg March. She was doing a really big-brained feminist take about— womanhood and limits, elegance, and the devaluation of aesthetics of womanhood. She was having a little baby feminist moment, a very femme baby feminist moment. And everyone loved her stuff. And we were like, unfortunately, this was supposed to be an essay about someone real who's important to you. (laughs) And instead it is a poem about Meg March. We did write her a really long letter and I gave her some recommendations, including actually some of your writing uh, about Little Women.
0: Wow. Because I was like, I'm sure she will connect with this on some level. I mean, you privately shared that poem with me and because it is by an 11 year old, I haven't just recited it on the podcast. But if she ever wants to come by and be on the pod, I mean, we'd be very happy to have her. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually have her contact information because okay. it was like <laughs> a
1: librarian judging the writing oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of situation. But we, I wrote to the person in education services mm-hmm. that was giving the giving the stuff back <laughs> to all the contestants and stuff. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, author of the poem, if you're listening, if you're out there, if you know yeah. the child who wrote that poem, I mean, please get in touch. How? What's your relationship to Little Women outside of that? So I frankly have not
1: reread the whole book in many years. I was read Little Women in the Bath by my mom at about age, I want to say five, but it couldn't have been that young. I think it must have been six or seven or eight, but my dad would read to me before bedtime and my mom would read to me in the bath. And that was the structure of being read aloud to. And my mom petered out a lot faster than my dad did. My dad kept reading to me until I was nine years old and my mom, I think... She went through Little House on the Prairie, and then she went through Little Women, and then we were done. (laughs) There are a lot of Little House on the Prairie books, though. So we got through all of those, all the Little House in the Big Woods, all the ones about Mm -hmm. boys, etc. And Little Women, I remember just, you know, I really identify with Joe, the tomboy. (laughs) And that's pretty much as far as it went with me. I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. tomboy character great yes <laughs> i love the family character love the skating on the ice scene very scary mm-hmm. the stuff where they are older i did not connect with as much because i was a very small child yeah so once the once they grow up and start struggling with the perils of womanhood in the world i got less interested i must yeah. say
0: yeah well i mean we are certainly we're on part two now we're covering the perils of womanhood in the world that's yeah. we're fully in it right now and before you get into that i mean you already answered this a little bit but which march sister are you i mean laurie for the purposes of this show is a march sister so you you can claim Lori if you'd like.
1: Yeah, so I think I'm Joe. I just really liked that she had a boy's name. In many ways, my gender is complex or interesting or something, but in many ways, it is just transmasculine. I think it's like I just a little baby Alison Bechtel kind of moment of, yeah, boy stuff. I want to wear boy's shoes or whatever. <laughs> Joe is your ring of keys moment, as it were. <laughs> or just one of the early examples. And also just in a classic book, because mm-hmm. I knew I identified primarily with boy characters and a lot of stuff. And when I would tell myself stories as a child, I would do this really funny 12-dimensional chess thing where I was (laughs) like, okay, I'm a girl. And so it's gender equality, actually, for me to have only boy protagonists in my stuff to not be (laughs) sexist. So when I would write as a boy character, and then I think Joe was just a figure of, okay, you can write like a, a tomboyish girl and there have been tomboyish girls for a long time and it's okay or whatever. I do also remember... Okay, another thing about Little Women and Me. I, do you remember AR tests? No. Did you not have those? Maybe not. I think it stood for advanced reading, and it was a really stupid, I think probably <laughs> George W. Bush initiated thing where you would take tests on books you read and get points for them. Oh. It was supposed to encourage reading, and then the classroom with the most AR points in a year got a pizza party. okay. But the thing I learned about it is you could pass most tests on most books without actually finishing the book. Ooh. So I did pass the AR test on Little Women without... Finishing the book when I was a child, <laughs> and then I got my AR score up because also if you read classic books or something, those got right, more points yeah, yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, oh shoot, I should really read some more classic books. So then I read the Cliff's Notes children's versions of Kerm and Melville and stuff to get more mm-hmm. AR points and pass those. That's what I. That's my other
0: thing. Yeah, gaming the system. I love it. I mean, that sounds like in some ways the communist version of the book at pizza program because mm. it, it was for a pizza party rather than a personal pan pizza. So in some ways, I am about this program. But <laughs> it also reminds me of the time I took the AP lit exam without taking the course and I got a five, which remains a proud moment in my life. <laughs> yeah, <awesome. laughs> so as you said, it's been a few years since you read the book. And I, I actually like people, I like guests to come to this podcast with a variety of experiences of Little Women. Not everybody needs to be or should be like a full expert. I love it when people are coming to this reading the book for the first time. They've only seen the movie. They're reading it. It's been a few years for them. I had one review that said this podcast got me to read Little Women. And I'm like, exactly. That's the whole point. That's what we're trying to do. So with that in mind and understanding that You read this chapter and like it seems isolation. We're talking about chapter 26, artistic attempts. How would you like to recap this chapter for us? What happens in this chapter? Amy is pretty good
1: at art. There's a lot of direct characterization, sort of telling, not showing happening here in the first part of the chapter. Amy is great at sketching. And maybe if there's a little bit of tone of condescension about her artistic skills here. I, I'm trying to figure out if this was in earnest because it was like, her work is very fine. She draws lots of nature scenes, draws lots of pictures of kids. Very cute, very sweet. And she also loves when socially upper-class people like her stuff. And that's also sort of maybe tied into her artistic work here. Maybe her affiliation with art or interest in art is actually about sort of hobnobbing with elegant ladies who do art as a recreational activity because they already have money or something. But it talks about her art, her sketching, her painting. And then it talks about a failed party that she is trying to throw for these other young women that are rich and she doesn't mean anything to them and her whole family sort of warns her carefully against putting too much effort into this and then she sets up for a big party and then one person comes after much hubbub and she is very brave about it and she's perfectly brave about it and Mm -hmm. then she accepts her failure at getting the rich ladies to come hang out there is also so there's a thing with trying to get a lobster
0: <laughs> yes. And a
1: cherry bounce. So, so, part of this is the very material details of food in this period and access and arranging of food for special occasions, which I was interested in. And then there's also a moment where Joe calls this endeavor ridiculous or whatever. And then Amy talks to Joe and is like, well, you can put your elbows out and your nose in the air and I'm going to try to have friends and have a party. Joe is like, ha 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 ha, you got me there. And they try it. It doesn't go great. I honestly, I mean, the experience of trying to throw a party and having no one show up is a terror. Awful. Especially if it's people you want to like you. There is a tone of kind of contempt for Amy's endeavor in this chapter for me, which is interesting.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's, you know, we understand that Amy is being very curious. She's exploring art. She's building new skills, trying new things. And the the chapter is kind of just relentlessly condescending about every single one of these efforts, you know, and it's not I don't know to what degree that's. Grounded in reality. But, you know, for instance, the major incident in this chapter is that Amy puts her foot in a plaster mold to make a mold of her foot and then gets her foot stuck in the plaster. But if you go to Orchard House, the Louisa May Alcott House Museum, you can see the plaster cast of the foot that the real life May Alcott made, and it turned out fine. And the whole house is full of May painting on the walls, drawing on the walls. She wound up being at least an adulthood, an incredibly gifted artist. So this chapter really comes across as a hatchet job on the real life May Alcott, if anything. Yeah. Also, as
1: someone who (laughs) I love to draw, I'm Mm -hmm. and I draw a lot, It's really hard to develop a consistent visual art practice because you are not good when you start. (laughs) And I'm still not as good as I want to be. And I I draw a lot and I'm proud of where my art has taken me and being able to express things via my art at this time in my life. And I was doing that a lot as a teenager, too. But there was also many years where I did not pick up a pen to draw almost at all because (laughs) I was like, well, this isn't really worth anything. I can't really go anywhere with this. I'm (laughs) not going to go to art school. I'm not going to turn this into my job. So all I can do is sort of unsatisfying drawings that I'm not happy with. And... Amy is getting something out of her artistic practice. I don't know. There's something There's something happening here related to art being what women of leisure do, I think, mm. and that kind of being the note of condescension, maybe.
0: Well, there's definitely also a reference here. Amy says that she is someone who has to work for her living. Mm-hmm. So there is an understanding Amy intends to use art as a trade. And so I just, I don't know what to make of the condescension here. The turning up your nose at socializing with women and having parties and participating in social life. We've seen that before in this book. That's not really new. What is new here is that Amy talks back and defends herself pretty robustly to, a, uh-huh. to the point where Joe is like, yeah, I can't <laughs> argue with that, which is a fascinating moment for me in this chapter, and maybe a reflection of how Joe's own views toward femininity and female companionship is sort of softening. What did you make of that moment specifically? I mean, I will say that I'm lacking the context of the immediately prior chapters,
1: I guess, too. So arcs of Joe's character, I'm not going to be able to comment on here. So I'm just going to (laughs) digress again, because I've been rereading a lot of MFK Fisher stuff. She's a food writer, and she writes a lot about, she's writing a lot about food. And then her mid-century food writing is also a lot of just kind of descriptions of social situations she's been in where there's been food present. And she also writes a lot about unpleasant dinner parties and times where the vibe is off. And M.F.K. Fisher is also a queer woman who has some contempt for her fellow women. Many times she was bisexual, and everyone who knew her is that yeah, she's bi. But her own writing is very torturously closeted, though not closeted enough to not show at the seams. She's always writing about women, and. Often writing about gender non-conforming women with a kind of and disgust that's really interesting. But she also is an unconventional woman and mostly gets along with men. A very mid-century queer woman vibes happening there. Yep. But she has some amount of contempt for sort of fussiness and rich people who don't taste their food because they're being too fussy about it. Oh, okay. Which is interesting. And I guess I'm just thinking about convention and lining up the tablecloth the right way or whatever, or like having the (laughs) correct fixings to make it a proper social event rather than pleasurable food event or whatever. And the party is supposed to sort of congregate in the house, the family has put out considerable effort to make it happen and to have enough food for everybody and have the salad and the ice cream and everything and make it proper for Amy's guests. And then it it does not happen and they have to look at the leftovers and then they send them to the Germans, which I was not sure of the context for, but yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's, they're a poor German family, single mom, six kids living in a one room shack nearby. So they, Uh the Hummels, the poor German family, they get kind of the leftovers from this Fancy feast that, mate that Amy had prepared. I, no, I, I think the MFK Fisher example is really interesting because I think what we're seeing in this chapter, both in the exploration of Amy's artistic attempts and then her dinner party, they're really two of a kind here. It's like everything that Amy tries sucks, and then this party, it also just she can't quite pull it off. But she, what's interesting to me, I'm, I am and again, I, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about this in the bigger context of the book, is that in the next chapter which we won't go into too much detail about, because that's next episode, Jo publishes her first novel, and it's not a success. So there's sort of, this is happening to Amy in this chapter. She's trying something really hard. She's really going for it. She's trying to make it perfect, and it just doesn't come out as she would planned. And then the exact same thing is going to happen to Joe in the next chapter in the same way. So maybe that's why As Alcott is structuring the book, Joe has some empathy here for Amy, but I don't know, it would be preemptive empathy (laughs) because she hasn't quite experienced the same thing herself. She's about to though, she's about to. So I'm thinking about Alcott as the author. I apologize, I'm kind of getting scattered here. Let's focus on, again, on Amy's trying to be an artist and the way that the book sort of judges her at every turn for screwing up as a developing artist. Let's see. Overstrained eyes soon cause pen and ink to be laid aside for a bold attempt at poker sketching, which is drawing with a fire poker, which causes a brief period of the family being afraid that the house is going to burn down. That was really interesting. I didn't know what that (laughs) meant. I couldn't picture what was going on with a fire poker drawing. Yeah, that's coming back into style. That's very Instagram popular is people drawing with molten hot metal on pieces of wood. It's also incredibly dangerous. (laughs) You know, do not try this at home, kids. But you know, then she falls to painting with undiminished ardor. And, you know, what Alcott, as Alcott's narrator has to say about this is her monstrosities in the way of cattle would have taken prizes at an agricultural fair, and the perilous pitching of her vessels would have produced seasickness in the most nautical observer if the utter disregard to all known rules of shipbuilding and rigging had not convulsed him with laughter at the first glance. And then there's, you know, she talks about how she's kind of making poor attempts to imitate other artists. Her charcoal portraits suck. (laughs) She's drawing children as models, and then they come to regard her as a young ogre. And then, of course, she gets her foot stuck in the plaster. It's every single one of these Mm -hmm. pursuits is bad. And I mean, it makes it kind of makes you wonder why, what are we supposed to learn about Amy from this chapter? What are we supposed Mm -hmm. to learn about Amy from her persistence throughout this? Are we meant to see this as persistent? Or are we seeing it as Amy is such an idiot? what a loser. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, the impression I remember having in my childhood
1: of little women is Joe is the cool one and the rest of them suck, (laughs) which is the vibe of this chapter a Mm -hmm. little bit. So I'm also remembering reading a biography of Louisa May Alcott when I was a child and Mm -hmm. learning that she was also gender nonconforming or whatever, learning, you know, the Louisa May Alcott tale of girl power that whatever 90s yeah, book i was yeah. reading or whatever you know and then also learning about quakerism because i was fascinated with quakers because that sounded cool the abolition stuff sounded cool it was like okay your family's on the right side of history that's nice i don't know so regarding art stuff it is kind of like okay so what kind of artistic practice is valid and how do you get uh-huh. there yeah what methods should amy be using instead <laughs> to attain artistic prowess
0: yeah, and it's interesting to compare this to Joe's artistic practice at the moment, which, as we've seen, is very for profit at this stage. She delights in selling these stories, getting these sensation stories out the door, making money to support her family. There's certainly an appreciation of literature and of writing and of craft for Joe, but there's also, she's pairing this with wanting to make money. Whereas for what Amy says about having to be a working girl, none of these artistic efforts, she's not selling paintings, right? She's not selling her arts and crafts yet. She's in an art class, there's sort of a goal of being better. But this is not something that Amy is thinking about is making money from her artwork yet at this stage. And I wonder if this hard driving capitalist impulse enters into it at all. Amy's not producing anything of monetary value. Is that where the condescension comes in? Yeah. And that's also just thinking about the novel as I have
1: heard, and I, I'm unfortunately not a theorist, but I have heard, you know, some people talk about the novel as a product of a particular era of capitalism and as a middle-class artistic production, and also of a reading public that is middle-class or whatever. The novel is a middle-class art form or something. Oh yeah. Initially it's an aristocratic art form, It's like the really weird gay aristocrats are writing like gothic (laughs) novels, and then it turns into middle class women having a trade can write a novel or whatever, can be a romantic or can produce something. And then this novel is also just kind of about a family, a place in time, ways of production, ways of reproducing the family or producing a family or something. And it's a little bit, it's interesting to think about little women as countercultural versus hegemonic, I guess, because... It was presented to me as a child in the same context of Little House on the Prairie, which is like a hegemonic text, I think. Oh
0: boy, is it ever. <laughs> I don't, yeah.
1: I don't know. Yeah, just thinking about this novel and class. And I think the middle class in the 19th century is countercultural of in its time because it is pushing against previous mores and previous social structures. Mm-hmm. And part of that is a gender transgression by middle class women or an establishment of women in trades, etc. Also, what's happening in the 19th century is just the whole sphere of womanhood or whatever. Absorbing the book as a kid, I was like, this is all about all the boring stuff that women had to do. And I hate it. And it's about Joe being cool, and everyone else (laughs) sucking. But I don't know in terms of what is being said, how to do a trade, how to produce something to be consumed or sold. And honestly, just in terms of a personal sense, I'm always trying to sell stuff I make and often wondering if the point of my stuff has meaning. I have meaning if mm-hmm. I'm not selling my stuff. It's still a concern for an artist. And mm-hmm. most artists still don't make that much money from what we make. Yeah. So it's about being able to figure out worth. <sighs> Sorry, I'm being pretty dumb here. I don't know.
0: No, I mean, you're not being dumb. And I mean, I just want to interject here and say that Hal has just ordered a print run of, I think, 100 copies of Vivian's Ghost. And if you go to his Instagram get them now, they're going to be hot commodities, I'm sure. By the time this um, is
1: on air when is this
0: gonna in a couple of weeks actually so oh, okay yeah <laughs> Okay, cool. No, So aside from that, by Hal's books, by Vivian's ghost, by Hal, (laughs) I think you you bring up an interesting point here in just the middle classness of this moment because as much as we've talked about the contempt here in this chapter for Amy, there's also kind of extreme contempt for wealthy people and the strictures and the conventions of them. And as you, I think you said before we were recording, this is a chapter fundamentally about rich people flaking on you and, you know, looking down on the marches. There's, is kind of implicit here. You know, so I think Both this and the other moment I'm thinking of, which you might remember, is when Meg goes to a debutante ball and kind of borrows a dress from a rich girl and borrows some jewelry and flowers from rich girls and parties all night. And Lori comes in as rude and misogynistic to her. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's also a moment of looking down on the upper class and saying the stuff that accumulated wealth produces is not worth having. These are shallow people who will flake on you for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think that's coming across here. But at the same time, the marches are firmly positioned as being in a position to be able to donate excess food to -hmm. poorer people, right? They are quite literally in this chapter, at least the middle class between these two poles. Yeah. Can you
1: talk about Little Women as a frontier novel for you? Is it a frontier novel?
0: Well, so it's difficult. It's not a frontier novel in the sense that Little House on the Prairie is, nothing is, you know, no new ground is being broken. They're not going west or anything. At the same time, the indigenous people of this area, they're not present in this novel. There's just an understanding that the land has been claimed. Obviously, disputes over land were major in the background of this novel, right, taking place in the Civil War, disputes over property, enslaved people. But I don't read it necessarily as a frontier novel. By this point, it's the construct of New England has been pretty well established. What I am curious about is while we're talking about the history of New England, I wonder where we are in the social status of the lobster. Is this something that you're following at all? (laughs) The history of lobster as going from being banned, actually, from being prison food for being cruel to serve to people to the poshest food on the planet. Where are we in that trajectory?
1: Fascinating question. I want to recommend everyone listen to the podcast, The History of American Food. Okay. She's still on the 18th century, so I'm not sure by the 19th century. I do think the lobster by this point is posh. Okay. But I don't know how posh.
0: Well, yeah, because Amy's embarrassed to be seen with a lobster on the carriage ride home. But at the same time... Maybe it's just about acquiring the lobster yourself? Could be. Because, yeah, it's how is she embarrassed about being seen with the lobster, but then she's serving the lobster for all this rich people? What is that about? Yeah, I don't know.
1: I think maybe it's about acquiring and needing to go shopping yourself or something. Mm. I'm not sure. Or just carrying seafood. (laughs) What I have to share on seafood and American history that I have learned from the History of American Food podcast Mm -hmm. is the eastern seaboard was just covered in mussels and clams and oysters and all kinds of crustaceans. And The settlers initially rejected this food source and then gradually became accustomed to it because it was so easy to get and then completely overfished all of those beds really fast in 100 years. And then the prestige of the oyster really took a while to settle in or for it to be kind of assimilated into American food dishes. And then shellfish was not seen as edible by English people for a long time. But then the Dutch settlers were more okay with seafood in general and Dutch settlers We're probably some of the driving force behind the overfishing of all the seabeds. And then presumably in the South, the same thing is happening. People know what seafood is or they don't and gradually Mm -hmm. make it part of the diet. And it's abundant and cheap. And so it's poor people Mm -hmm. food until it's all gone. And then it becomes rich people food.
0: Yeah, I know from, again, my (laughs) being a David Foster Wallace head that one big transition in lobster going from poor people prison food to the most posh thing a person can possibly eat is that there was a time when lobster was killed and preserved and eaten that way. And the transition to lobster as high quality dining really happened when we started boiling lobsters alive. And it's unclear. Again, I really looked for it. It's unclear if the lobster Amy is taking home from the market is alive or not. It doesn't, it's not waving its claws around. It's not scuttling around. It's someone getting off the carriage upsets the basket, which causes the lobster to be revealed. So it's unclear whether this is fresh, just caught New England lobster, or if it's been killed and it's kind of lousy. It's, (laughs) this is a question I'm really interested in as a Wallace head. And because this is actually the second time in Little Women that someone fucks up a lobster dinner. Uh In the first half of the book, Joe screws up making lobster. In that case, we hear that she buys one that's too small, so there's barely any meat in it. And she has a hell of Mm -hmm. a time kind of taking the lobster apart and preparing it. Whereas here, it just it seems like just being seen with the lobster is a huge embarrassment for Amy. I mean, she really, a real credit to Amy, she spins this embarrassing lobster moment like she is the coolest person alive. So basically a cute boy sits down next to her on the at the carriage and pokes the scarlet monster with a cane. And Amy gathers herself and said, don't you wish you were to have some of the salad he's to make and to see the charming young ladies who are to eat it? Mm -hmm. This is social graces to the extreme. She turns that embarrassing moment into, you know, she makes this boy want to come to dinner with her. (laughs) And it's interesting to think about that real moment of tact and just, control over oneself in an embarrassing situation with what amy says about how joe like you go through life with both elbows out and your nose in the air you don't care who you bump into with amy getting along with other people is a skill that she is really working hard to master i don't want to discount that i don't know if you read that into amy at all what do you think
1: sorry i am looking up i googled social status of 19th century lobster so (laughs) that's where i'm at (laughs) I do think she acts cool toward the guy who mm-hmm. folks the lobster. So in 1876, John J. Rowan was writing about lobster shells oh are being looked on as signs of poverty is what I'm looking at this PS Mag article right now. Hold on. I'm going to copy paste this to you just in case I you you. include it in the 19th century when consumers could buy Boston baked beans for 53 cents a pound canned lobster sold for 11 cents a pound. So okay, maybe, so yeah, maybe this lobster is a poor person food. Which is so jarring and also doesn't make sense in the context of this. So I'm wondering if we're missing something here. Well, you said 1850s, right? 1850s canned lobster? No, 53 cents a pound for Boston baked beans. 19th century is the only thing in that sentence. Okay. We're figuring out decade by decade the trajectory <laughs> of the lobster.
0: What I, okay. So how I read lobster in here is as an ascendant food perhaps it's making the transition from poor person food to rich person food restaurants first started to serve lobster in the 1850s
1: and 60s in the salad section
0: okay and this is a full amy's not bringing home cheap shitty canned lobster she is bringing home a alive lobster. or dead we don't know a lobster yeah. period right and it's yeah. being made into a lobster salad which also sounds fancy it's also somewhat inland right they're not right on the coast right? yeah no they're in concord which, yeah. by commuter train, it's like a half-hour commuter train ride from Boston, which I can't imagine what that would be by horse and buggy. It's like a day from the coast. They could certainly buy lobster that had been caught within a day or two. But again, unclear. I, I don't know why we're doing forensic analysis of this lobster. But Okay, so- It stands so- for a lot in this chapter. At the end of the chapter, Lori gives Amy a watchguard charm- made of coral of a lobster. So it stands for a lot. It ends the chapter.
1: It is. Okay. So very middle-class things happening with this lobster based on this article. Okay. Trains popularize lobster because the train allows the lobster to get inland and also trains Mm -hmm. serve it like it's a fancy food, even though it's not. And then inland people who have never tried lobster get into it.
0: Oh, of course. Yeah.
1: So it's trash food on the coast, but then once it makes it (laughs) inland, people are like, oh, I can eat this seafood. That's cool. So it seems like it's maybe a fancy thing, at least in Concord at this moment. Yeah. And then lobster prices hit a peak in the 1920s. So this is going to continue for a while. So It is ascendant, not quite trash, but also perhaps an absurd or weird food or something. And maybe just a culinary item that's sort of embarrassing to be seen with in some way because you have to prepare it rather than your servant or something. I don't know.
0: Right. Yeah. So then, I mean, if we're talking about, again, Little Women as a frontier novel, that they're further inland than the coast, that's for sure. And maybe it's that, even that day's travel of distance from the coast that is making lobster seem that much more alluring in Concord. Maybe it is mm-hmm. that local. And this reminds me, this is something that I've hinted at a few times, but never really gotten into, is the story of the real life May Alcott's Hot Girl Summer vacationing (laughs) on the coast of New England. And she's there for about a week. And we get, I swear to God, this is from the Houghton Library at Harvard. I sat there and read her journal, and she must have taken up half this notebook talking about how fucking sweet this vacation was. And she comes home and she's like, I wish I were back on the coast. I can't wait for next summer. It's going to be great. This time Lou is going to have to come. I keep telling Lou how great it was. And basically, what I get the sense of is that the real-life May Alcott loved the coast, loved the ocean, loved being there. I know that actually her very her distinction as an artist was as a copyist of these Turner shipwreck paintings. She was a, a maestro of painting the sea and copying Turner. So maybe this is, <laughs> in an even more broad sense, it's just Amy May longing for the coast, longing to be on the coast, longing for any hint of the sea. You know, we really could talk this entire time about the lobster. And, you know, here it says, I'm just looking at the page. The lobster was instantly surrounded by a halo of pleasing reminiscences. It really stands for a lot. It's pulling its way. Yeah. (laughs) This thing of the lobster. Have you read Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace? Hal? No, I've had Consider the Oyster by MFK Fisher. Which is, oh, that's, wow. Connection, synergy. Yeah. This is, it's all coming together. Well, so then what did MFK Fisher have to say about oysters? And then I'll give my Wallace repartee. I mean,
1: lots. She talks about their sexual valence. She talks about pleasing comfort food, about the first admixture of oysters and dairy into a chowder. Mm-hmm. As a symbol of American assimilation of new foods and new places, or whatever, is Mm -hmm. a lot of it. And then also, she likes doing kind of grandiose things about history. She's not a historian, but she will sort of harken back to historical recipes. Or she has Mm -hmm. different essays. There's quite an interesting one about her first oyster at a girls' school in California in the 1920s. That's about lesbianism. So there's (laughs) a lot.
0: Actually, I'm not sure if that's in the
1: oyster book or if that's in a different book. She does have a essay called "The First Oyster" that's about getting flirted with at a girls' school.
0: Wow. I mean, and that brings us back to Alcott. I mean, <laughs> I don't see the lobster as a lesbian symbol <laughs> particularly no, in talk. this chapter. And I mean, Wallace doesn't get into the sexual ramifications of lobsters as much as he it, he was very deep on the ethics of eating lobster and boiling lobster alive specifically. And so he's looking more at death than at sex. But I, it's interesting that MFK Fisher has come up a couple of times here as a figure of like, a closeted figure who had real contempt for high femininity, which is certainly something that we see in this chapter. <laughs>
1: yeah she I don't know i, I am just on a mid century lady tear right now, mm-hmm. which is why I keep bringing her up, but she mm-hmm. does write a lot about society and she ultimately is from kind of an upper crust background, but she considers herself sort of she's not financially stable throughout her life, and I think she sees herself as a working woman sure. she ultimately is a working woman who's selling her writing to make money for her yeah like got. been for part of her life yeah, so she's contemptuous of the rich lady on the transatlantic ship that she's on for instance or she's (laughs) contemptuous of academic wives in the university town that she's in or whatever Uh, who go to luncheons and they never taste anything and she talks a lot about people who eat fancy but can't taste their food and she's thinking about that a lot in terms of food writing she also goes to very fancy restaurants sometimes she's very interested in the meal as a site of joy and she's not a radical but she does talk about needing to interrupt social mores in order to have a more joyful or pleasurable experience at the table. A lot.
0: Do you see any social mores being broken in this chapter when the marches are having dinner with their the one girl who bothered to show up, Miss Elliot, Amy's sole guest? I think
1: Amy is keeping up appearances. I don't know. I think he yeah. is doing the do. They do, I think, put, I don't know, sorry, I'm, now I'm forgetting, but they talk about putting chicken in the salad and not noticing the toughness of the chicken in the salad. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a violation of anything, but I do think they're putting on a, a good <laughs> show for a middle-class family in this. I'm also sorry. I'm looking at cherry bounce now because I did. I thought that was a dessert, but it's a cocktail.
0: No, actually, in this chapter, it's the cherry bounce is Hannah the Irish maid's mispronunciation of the charabanc. What is? It's a carriage. The cherry oh, bounce is a kind of carriage. <laughs> I completely misread that. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's it completely cocktail. Yeah, it also it, I mean, it certainly made me hungry for desserts. And I can see why it would be you would think that but no, it's the cherry bounce is a it's racist. irish. <laughs> it's, it. it's this continual fascinating making fun of Hannah's accent and her speech. And it's a play on that. I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm hyper fixating on food. It's <laughs> okay. I mean, this is the chapter to do it. This is a food chapter there. I know that there is out there I haven't had a chance to read it myself, but there is a Little Women cookbook, which logs all of the food made and consumed Little Women and provides recipes for some of the more obscure ones. We had an episode where my friend Dennis Lee and I pickled limes, because that's something Mm. that Amy dabbles in earlier in the book. And we found out how, if I said to you pickled lime, do you think that sounds like a good time or a bad time? I don't know if it would be a good time or a bad time. Okay. Because I, my thought was, this is going to be disgusting. Uh And then we made them and they were fantastic. <laughs> I still have a bunch of them, and I like will snack on one from time to time because they keep forever. They're preserved, uh-huh. and yeah. they taste really good. So I can fully in- yeah. endorse pickled limes. I don't know about lobster salad. It's interesting what you said about how you brought that up that MFK Fisher thing about rich ladies who and academic wives who go to lunch and don't taste the food. And, <laughs> and a moment like that happens here and is interrupted when Mr. March sits down and mildly observes, salad was one of the favorite dishes of the ancients. An explosion of laughter cut short the history of salads, to the great uh-huh. surprise of the learned gentleman. And uh, you know, because they're making a mockery of thinking too deeply about about your food, it seems. Or which is exactly yeah. what we've been doing this whole time, thinking about the meaning of these foods. Yeah, yeah. The tiny coral
1: lobster. I'm looking at any detail of how people consume the food yeah the cherry bounce I thought that they were having a dessert or a cocktail rather than
0: the carriage well so I mean what do you think that moment where Mr. March is about to give them a lowdown on the history of salad and everyone laughs at him what do you read into that about class and education because I think it's a really funny moment Maybe it's as simple as Mr. March being a blowhard, which we know he kind of was in real life. Yeah, I mean, it could be
1: a sitcom stock character moment just to be like, that's who this guy is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because Mr. March is here for the second half of the novel. He's home from the war. He's still not very present. There are moments where. There's not a ton of Beth in this chapter, though we're far out still from Beth passing away. We were talking in the episode about Meg's wedding, about how Beth is barely there, and we sort of determined that may have been because the real life Elizabeth Alcott had passed away by the time Anna Alcott got married. But I I just can't account for the kind of absence of Mr. March from this whole chunk of the book. I mean, it, it seems like he's the one making the lobster and preparing the salad. But then he sort of laughed down when he tries to to give them all a lecture about the history of Salad and what the ancients thought of it. The marches and the Alcotts, they were poor people. There were times when they were broke, they had nowhere to live, they were staying with friends, the family was going to break up because the father couldn't support them. And and that eventually stabilized later on, actually, as the daughters entered the workforce. But they always did place a really high premium on education. And the marches, uh, the the Alcotts, They read books, they went to lectures, they, you know, their family friends were Emerson and Thoreau, their next door neighbors were the Hawthorns, they were part of this very learned community. So it's interesting that education and, or at least this high minded form of education of, you know what, my dinner conversation is going to be a lecture on how the ancients viewed lobsters, viewed salad. It's interesting that that's kind of a punchline here. I don't know what you make of that.
1: yeah. I'm trying to read for the dad now, too. He has an expression of placid despair about the salad on Tuesday. So that's another thing he's doing in the chapter is okay. having an expression of placid despair. He seems rather like a flat background
0: guy. Yeah. Although, from what I know about Amos Alcott, placid despair seems to sum up a lot of it. Yeah. Let's. There's sort of one big point I wanted. I know I wanted to hit. We spent a lot of this talking about lobster, but there's a major moment here when Amy essentially stands up to Joe, Mm. and I I want to spend some time on that because I think it's a turning point here for. Amy's sense of self-possession, and Amy's just standing in the novel and as a family. It complicates this earlier contempt for Amy's artistic pursuits, and it frankly, it colors what comes afterwards with the failure of the dinner party, because Amy defends herself so vigorously and successfully here. So this comes when... Amy asks everyone in the family for help putting on this dinner party. And Joe frowns on the project and will have nothing to do with it and says, Why in the world should you spend your money, worry your family, and turn the house upside down for a parcel of girls who don't care a sixpence for you? I thought you had too much pride and sense to truckle to any mortal woman just because she wears French boots and rides in a coupe. And we are told that Joe has been called out of the tragical climax of her novel. She's not in a great mood. <laughs> so this is Joe on like cranky day, but it's harsh and it's not just harsh, but it's kind of the unfiltered moral of the earlier incident where Meg went away to the debutante ball. This is has been presented kind of uncritically earlier in the book. And as you said, because your impression of the book was Joe is the cool one and everyone else sucks. Maybe this is the message that readers are coming away from the book with. But Amy comes back and says, I don't truckle which I take to mean I'm not, you know, I'm not a doormat for these people, right? And I hate being patronized as much as you do. The girls do care for me, and I for them. Well, We later learn that's kind of not true. They all flake. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a great deal of kindness and sense and talent among them, in spite of what you call fashionable nonsense. You don't care. And this is the crux for me. You don't care to make people like you, to go into good society and cultivate your manners and tastes. I do. And I mean to make the most of every chance that comes. You can go through the world with your elbows out and your nose in the air and call it independence if you like. That's not my way. And... (laughs) That's harsh. That is not an entirely kind thing to say to Joe. But Amy's definition of Joe's idea of independence was such a good hit that both burst out laughing. And Joe consented to sacrifice a day to quote unquote, Mrs. Grundy, which was at the time kind of a slang term for a prim woman. Amy wins this one. (laughs) How do you think Amy wins this one? What makes that argument effective here?
1: I mean, she's talking about personal connections also. She's not (laughs) just talking about her status in the world, but also by she's referencing being part of a community or a pattern of behavior Yeah, and not being alone. And I think that is how she wins the argument because she's participating in a society. She's like, we must participate in a society.
0: (laughs) Yes. Amy said, we live live in in a a society. society And I
1: have to head surf tongue to these ladies. (laughs) It's interesting. So I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm going back to the food. She's talking about- We have to have cold tongue and chicken, French chocolate and ice cream. She mm-hmm. does not mention the lobster. So we are still left in the dark about the lobster, it's- but those are the things that are signifying success. Yeah. And they're going out of their way after her mom is like, is cake and sandwiches and fruit and coffee enough? That's normal. And then she's like, no, we've got to have <laughs> ice cream. Yeah, I don't know. And I am I think I want more insight into Amy's personal connections with the ladies that like here. Yeah. I want to know what any of her interactions personally with them look like, I guess, or what her <laughs> feelings about any of them as individuals are, which we're not
0: really getting here. Yeah. well, we. So the one girl who shows up is Miss Elliot. And yeah. Beth observes with unusual warmth, Miss Elliot is a very sweet girl and seemed to enjoy herself, I thought. And when Miss Elliot comes in the door, she says she found them a most hilarious set. It was impossible to control the merriment which possessed them. Miss Elliot comes into the world. and It's like, yeah, I'm having a good time. So the one girl who shows up for Amy is positively changed by the experience and integrated into the family, it seems. It's just the other Uh, girl's flake.
1: Yeah, but then she's only named very briefly and then she disappears again. So it's like, what social connections does outside the family, does she actually have social connections that are worth something? Mm -hmm. And I think that the answer ends up being kind of no, like she's not making (sighs) a a lot of loyal friends or professional connections here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, and it's interesting, again, at this point in the novel, Meg has married a, a working man. Meg is not, her social status will not be advancing through marriage. She has married for love. She's living in a very small house with her new husband, who's not making very much money. Economic advancement is off the table for Meg. Joe, likewise, again, elbows out, nose in the air, She has, you know, Lori has hinted, oh, I'm sure you're going to get married next. And she's been like, no fucking way. So then the two kind of marriageable prospects here are Beth and Amy at this point. And this is kind of, this is a real show of investment in advancing her social status. And eventually, I don't want to entirely frame it as Amy wanting to eventually marry Rich because it's about female companionship that she's after here. She wants the company of other women. She says, the girls care for me and I for them. It's about wanting friendship in high society. and yeah. through, It's like economic advancement through friendship almost. But there does seem to be like a real, a, an element of genuine care, or at least what yeah. Amy perceives as such. Yeah, I'm not seeing avarice in Amy's actions here.
1: And I'm not yeah. seeing social climbingness necessarily. But she's seeking friends. She's seeking connection. She's seeking you know, whatever <laughs> attenuated feminine version of love is socially appropriate or existing, this text for her. And it really sucks when you are counting on that from someone and they let you down. And I think the personal yeah. sadness here, it's understated. She's wiping <laughs> her eyes at the end. She's crying but being brave about it. But it is played off as kind of a comic episode. We're not really getting a lot of pathos here. It's not fully. No. Sorry, the other thing that came up thinking about Lobster is <laughs> oh the Sylvia Plath. The bell jar, the horrible luncheon in the bell jar where she ends up feeling super alienated and horrible.
0: Yeah. Can I say something? I've been sitting on, I've been biting my tongue trying not to talk about Sylvia Plath because I didn't think it was relevant since like you were talking about MFK Fisher up top. So I might as well do it now because you just okay, brought up yeah, yeah. Sylvia Plath and her lobster dinner. So you said MFK Fisher writing in this closeted way that's not obvious enough to be closeted and having a lot of contempt for these academic wives and also a lot of awe for and contempt for gender nonconforming women and lesbians. Did I, is that kind of like a sum up of the whole MFK Fisher? She sheet?
1: has, okay, she has both contempt and fascination with.
0: Yes. The yes. last.
1: So the, interestingly, if you're interested in MFK Fisher, the last chapter of her, her autobiography is about a trans man that her brother was in love with in the 1940s. Wow. It's about okay. that guy. It's about a 17 year old trans guy that led a mariachi band in this town in Mexico that her brother <laughs> lived in, and her brother taking singing lessons from him. Unstated in the last chapter of her autobiography is that her brother killed himself a couple months later it's an insane place to end your autobiography. That is why she ends it. And that chapter also references a different trans man she knew as a child who worked for her father's newspaper. She has okay. a number of episodes in her fiction and nonfiction where she talks about butch women and just kind of being fascinated saying she's repulsed, but she keeps <laughs> returning to the subject. There's a lot, there's a moment in one of her autobiographical episodes where she sort of rescues this German woman who has a horrible boyfriend from like a weird sex play thing Mm -hmm. that her boyfriend is doing with her that's upsetting her she lives in the same house as this woman and someone hears her crying so she goes to intervene and the woman is naked it's a very odd sexual scene there's a lot of things that come up in her published writing where she's not saying she has queer attraction but there's just recurring things happening that's mfk fisher's queerness that i can talk about
0: Okay. So thank you for bringing that up. I will bring this full circle from MFK Fisher through to Sylvia Plath back to Alcott. I just need you to stay with me here on this ride. We're going to try. Yeah. So this is what I've been sitting on is, this is from the journals of Sylvia Plath, which I highly recommend reading if you're in a good place.
1: Uh, no, thing. I've read them. I, I read them when yeah. I was in a bad place when I was 19. I was yeah. totally, totally. She's amazing yeah. at writing diaries. That's her real yeah. intense skill. It's incredible. And so many things in her diaries when I was 19. I was like, that's how it is.
0: Yeah. Well, so this yeah. is teenage Sylvia Plath. This is Sylvia Plath at Women's College, okay? So she's writing about a, one of her classmates, Okay. She personifies the word cute. She's short and luscious. You notice her short, thumpable nose, her long lashes, her green eyes, her long waist length hair, her tiny waist. She is Cinderella and Wendy and Snow White. Her face is cute. She talks cute with white teeth under a bright lipsticked mouth. Her smile is cute and she is perfectly coordinated. She can skate like Sonia Haney, ski like anyone who can ski well, swim like an Olympian, dance like some modern creature. I don't know much about dancing. She is fluid. She smokes cutely. You are always aware of her insolent breasts, which pout at you very cutely, very as underlined, from their position as high and close to her shoulders as possible. They are versatile breasts, always clamoring for attention. Perhaps they are angry at her face, which does not notice them, but smiled lashly and innocent above them. They are gay breasts, pushing out delightfully plump curves in her weak-willed sweaters. They are proud breasts, lifting their pointed nipples haughtily under the plaque, gold-button taffeta, or the shiny green satin. She is a breasty girl, and those two centers of emotion and nerve endings are shields, proud standards to lift life into the human race. What do we think of that, Hal? (laughs) First impressions. I think I
1: vaguely remember this passage. also. It's also, it's reminding me of Anais Nin a lot too. Anais Nin also likes to write about breasts that are lifting up and near the shoulders and really pointing out at you in the Mm -hmm. world. Anais Nin is another mid-century lady I'm obsessed with right now, but... She's famous for Herodica, but also wrote a ton of diaries like Sylvia. But none mm-hmm. of her stuff was published at the time Sylvia was writing. So I don't okay. think there's any influence there. I think it's just Sylvia and Anais then are both thinking about breasts. <laughs> yeah. I remember from Sylvia's diaries from later on, mm-hmm. when she's actually writing and publishing and stuff, that she also is constantly obsessed with competing with Adrian Rich before Adrian comes out as a lesbian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she's really mad at Adrian Rich for being yeah. a good poet. Also, is a thing I remember. Yeah. But she does, she notices women. She often is talking about other women and their beauty. The Bell Jar is a lesbian text. So it's (laughs) a sort of repressed one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I certainly, I mean, I don't know enough. I haven't done enough research on Sylvia Plath to state anything authoritatively, but I certainly read sexual desire in that journal entry. And I've noticed because you mentioned MFK Fisher. And the way that she felt about Butch women. I there is a lot of that explicitly in later Sylvia Plath journals, just outright contempt for lesbians and yeah. bisexual women that she knows, especially for Butches. Like Adrian Rich. She certainly she was not feeling Adrian Rich. I don't quote me on this. I think some of that there may be some speculation in Plath's diaries about Adrian Rich being a lesbian and like casting negative aspersions on Adrian in that light. Again, don't quote me, but I think it, it's a pattern that we see again and again with Again, I I don't want to make any authoritative statements about Sylvia Plath. I haven't done the legwork there. But this thing of MFK Fisher, Lou Alcott, people who were maybe not able to fully publicly be themselves, having a lot of issues to work through when it comes to the way that other women perform femininity or masculinity. And the way that here, the improvement on Alcott's earlier treatment of female friendship and companionship in the debutante ball chapter, is that Amy wins? She wins in the abstract, if not in, in practice, <laughs> which is interesting to me. It's like Joe says, "Okay, point one femininity," and even the characterization of Joe's idea of independence is like Amy points out: it's a bit snobby. It's not just your elbows out making a clatter; your nose is in the air. You're overlooking things when you shouldn't. Which is it? We have gone all over the place in this recording. We've gone all today. over the place. <laughs> It's true. Okay, so yeah. so final impressions, final thoughts on this chapter. I feel
1: like Amy's deep internal experience is not being adequately examined here, is yes. my lasting impression. Yeah. I think we're not getting meaningful, evocative insight into her. We're kind of being asked to regard this as a comic episode, I guess. And it is, it can be a comic episode. It's an attempt to tie them to a wider world. And it's absorbed with the mechanics of making that attempt and the difficulty Mm -hmm, of making mm -hmm. that attempt, whether that's an attempt to bridge class distinctions or whether that's an attempt to just have connection outside the family. There's a lot of work that goes into the logistics of this party that doesn't happen and it fails. And then ultimately it's fine because you have your family, but it's about the family being in isolation and that isolation sort of being unbridgeable, at least by Amy, at least at this time.
0: Yeah, that's really Yeah, we know that Joe has no aspirations outside of the family and in fact she really she not only doesn't want to get married she doesn't want her sisters to get married. Yeah. Right. And so it's maybe a little bit of we've just had the wedding and now this is the next thing and Amy's getting you know spreading her wings and getting ready to leave the nest and we get this thing of like how pathetic Amy. Good yeah. try. Yeah. <laughs> well, we get, I mean we get a lot about lobster.
1: I we receive the lobster. We, we think about the lobster. We, <laughs> we think the about lobster. the
0: lobster. We consider the lobster deeply. Yeah, one of my I think if you ever want to start a podcast, Hal, we should do a David Foster Wallace podcast called "Hey Hal," where you read Infinite Jest for the first time and we go through it section by section. And it's called "Hey Hal" both because Hal is the main guy in Infinite Jest and your Hal.
1: Yeah, I truly <laughs> did not know the plot to Infinite Jest until recently when I looked it up, and I, I could not have guessed what the plot of Infinite Jest is before I read the Wikipedia summary.
0: Probably, I don't know how much you're getting from
1: Wikipedia either. <laughs> There's, it's quite a long article. They try to break it down for you. They do their best. I don't know if I yeah. At the large collective house that I lived in until last until 2021, the bathroom tomes that were on the back of the mm-hmm. toilet were Infinite Jest, and then a 1950s book about astrology, which were both really heavy tomes oh, yeah. at some point point yeah. in the collective house's history had decided to be the bathroom books so i love I didn't, that i didn't read the infinite just yeah. one. i just them, you know if your guy is a taurus or whatever from the perspective <laughs> of a 1950s lady
0: well i love that. i mean I, maybe yeah. that's more the domain of plath and fisher so okay syllabus for this episode we have the diaries of sylvia plath we have MFK Fisher's Consider the Oyster. We have David Foster Wallace's Consider the Lobster. And of course, we have Hal's Books out of Salem, which is currently available. How to get over the end of the world, which is now available for pre-order. And this is me trying, like this is me trying it really nicely into the conclusion. Thank you, thank you. And the limited run of Vivian's Ghost, which is this is an indie print. This is like a hundred copies available. You can order through Hal's Instagram. So how, where can people find you online? Where they, where can they buy and pre-order your books? I'm on Instagram at- howl
1: marin it's not spelled like my name because okay. at one point i was like what have i spelled it like Howls moving castle and then that's still <laughs> my instagram handle it's h-o-w-l-m-a-r-i-n on instagram and then i'm hal shreve on twitter on my instagram there's a link tree and you can click on the link tree to order vivian's ghost you could also find me at the trans art bazaar on april 2nd in new york if Woo. you live in new york to buy stuff in person comics and stuff and then my book that is my YA novel that's coming out mm-hmm. this fall is going to come out through Seven Stories Press. You can pre-order it through Seven Stories Press or Penguin Random House, or you could go a little extra trouble and contact your local bookstore about it, because that would be cool. Yeah, That one is about teens in Olympia, Washington, which is where I grew up. It is also a town where Peyton has set a book. <laughs> yes. so We have both written about trans teens in Olympia, Washington, though I think we have written about very different experiences oh, of being yeah. <laughs> trans teens in Olympia, Washington. My teens are bad at school, and they go to punk shows, whereas my actual experience. I did go to punk shows, but I was mm-hmm. more the debate club teen in Peyton's mm-hmm. book. I was more of a square. So, you know, we'll, once yeah. you read both books, you'll have kind of an understanding of what it is like to be a trans teen in Olympia, Washington. Yeah,
0: it's the full spectrum of emotional experiences of trans teens in Olympia, Washington. And actually, I mean, how this is a fun fact. I wanted to go to Olympia and get the local flavor <laughs> while uh-huh. I was writing the book but I was unable to because I was revising that book during the lockdown period of the pandemic and Hal incredibly generously wrote me like a dossier of like local Intel on Olympia and was like this is where they would go this is the parks the festivals the events this is where Jonah the environmentalist love interest would go hiking so I did get some thanks to hal there is some Olympia flavor in that book beyond just his friend's mom has a vegan restaurant <laughs> so <laughs> so I, you know, I owe how my life in that regard. Yeah. Pre-order, how to get over the end of the world. This is as we've made this point before, but it's a really critical moment for trans YA in particular. These books are kind of first on the front lines when book bans are coming down. We don't need to get into all the nasty things that are said about trans people who work with young people and children, but pre-order this book. I'm ordering you too. <laughs> and order it yeah. for your library, give it to the trans kid in your life. Yeah. Hal, do you have anything you want to say on that front? I do think trans YA
1: is hashtag important, which is why I (laughs) write it. I want there to be it's called How to Get Over the End of the World. Ultimately, yeah. it's less dramatic than Andrew Joseph White's How Followed It With Us. It's not actually about an apocalypse, but mm-hmm. it's about the sense of an impending apocalypse. And it's about the feeling that you get when you're a trans teenager who kisses another trans teenager for the first time. And mm-hmm. magic happens, and yeah. you feel excited yeah. about the future, even though you're not sure what the future will look like. Mm-hmm. I think... The feeling of uncertainty, but hope, is what I am hoping to co- yeah. grasp in my YA novel that is coming out this October. So hopefully that vibes. Hopefully it's a vibe. Yes, I'm not trying to write about trans people who are perfect. Everyone is no chaotic no. with each other, which is my experience of trans people is we're really mm-hmm. chaotic with each other. But I think also there is some hope of what we can achieve. Many of my books, I think, have the message. Trans slash queer love is very strong. We're not mm-hmm. sure if it's good yet, but it is strong. <laughs> so I think that's the point, too.
0: Okay. So now, lightning round before you go, Hal, protagonists of your major works. Okay. Which March sister is Z from out of Salem? What if I say Beth? I don't have a justification. <laughs> well, so for anyone just tuning in, Z is a zombie. So I ge- I guess that works. And then, okay. Isil
1: is Isla is Joe for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, hands down. But I don't... Yeah, I don't know.
0: Okay. No, Z can be bad. Okay, and then... Yeah. Well, okay, so there's four kind of main players as I see it in How to Get Over the End of the World. We have Opal, Ursino, James, and Monique. So which March sisters are they? <laughs> I'm sweating like someone is asking me my Hogwarts house. I'm like...
1: <laughs> I don't know. Okay, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know. I think... Based on the 11-year-old obsessed with Meg, I'm going to be like, Monique is Meg. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you have a read on any of the other ones. I'm
0: just going to gut feel this. Yeah, I agree. Monique, Meg, Opal, Joe, frankly. Yeah.
1: Opal moves the plot. Yeah. Even though Opal is not a POV character, Opal's doing a lot to move the plot.
0: Yeah. And you know what? So obviously, hands down, James, Amy. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And James is a character who, when... Gets He gets some shit about using the men's room and decides to fight back against that by posting wheat paste posters around the school that say pee-pee-poo-poo for me-me-you-you, which is an Amy as hell move. I think we can all agree. And then Orsino is like the kind of the quiet, death-obsessed one who's who makes art out of bones. That's Beth. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, 100%. Okay, and I won't make you do any more. I won't ask you who Vivian is. (laughs) I
1: mean, maybe I will. (laughs) Vivian is David Foster Wallace.
0: No <laughs> <laughs> Actually yeah. <laughs> Who's Leon? Leon is Aunt March. Okay. Leon Leon Donegal is the antagonist trans-obsessed journalist of Vivian's Ghost. And I think, you know, I
1: love this game, but I can't play it. I'm so sorry. That's
0: okay. He's just he has his nose and everything. He's kind of a I think he's at March. All right. Well, (laughs) thank you so much for bearing with me and playing this dumb game. As always, I am your host Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at PeytonThomas.ca. You can buy my book both sides now wherever fine books are sold. You can find us on Instagram at Joe's Boys Pod. And I mean, if you aren't already, subscribe, leave a review leave a rating we just hit a thousand subscribers just on spotify which is very exciting so thank you all for being here and we look forward to bringing you more of the joe's boys you know and love